This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. What's going on, NBA Draft fans? It's your boy, Corey Tulba, uh from the No Ceilings NBA Draft Podcast, back with another Lost files episode this time um we are going to be talking a little bit about nba jersey and logo design with tom o'grady who is the man this is the guy who designed all of your favorite uniforms from the 90s all of your favorite logos this is the guy he is the head of creative for the nba for like 15 years so we get into a lot of awesome discussion about uniform design and logo design and the history and the thought process, the creative process, and even, you know, how things may or may not have changed from, you know, yesteryear to today, uh, the good and the bad, everything in between. It was a really awesome conversation with um, one of the more unheralded people in the space who had a lot of cool stories. So uh, without further ado, let's get into it with my guy, Tom O'Grady. We're here with Tom O'Grady of Game Plan Creative and the former NBA uh, creative director during what I think most would say is the golden age of NBA jersey and branding design. Uh, Tom, thank you so much for joining me. Corey, thank you so much. This is a, a, a privilege. And uh, any guy who's wearing his son's uh, jersey, <laughs> they're okay with me. Look, it's looking good on you, too. The, the hoodie. I appreciate that. Yeah, yeah. I appreciate that. Um, before we get started and talk about the jerseys and, you know, the history and everything that you did with the NBA, how did you get into, you know, art, graphic design, and then specifically, you know, uniform and branding design for, you know, a franchise and company organization like the NBA? Okay, I'll try to, like, speed through this so it doesn't, you know, slow down you know, some momentum I think we're going to have. In the in the late seventies, I was uh, you know I graduated high school in nineteen seventy six, and back then, so speaking to my age here, I was trying to figure out what to do with my college career. And I I had a bunch of friends who wanted to go to DePaul here in Chicago and study accounting and business, and that wasn't for me. I had a kind of a more of a creative flair, and I had a friend at uh, my high school who was going into photography, and he was going to a school here in Chicago called Columbia College which was just kind of an up and coming school for the arts. And uh, there's some kind of famous alums there, Pat Sajak from <laughs> Wheel of Fortune. It became kind of this entertainment eclectic Midwest school. And so I went there originally for photography and I love photography, but um, I also had this kind of burning desire in my, in my background. I'm one of those guys who would sit in class and noodle and make hockey player drawings or logos. <laughs> I'm sure there's a lot of us out there that have done the same thing. And so uh, early in my uh, time at Columbia, they introduced the graphic design department. And so I shifted majors after my freshman year and went into graphic design. And that was, I would call it almost like, um, you know, graphic design pioneering. It was not a sophisticated business back in the late 70s. There was obviously no Macintosh or, or computer graphics to speak of. It was more of a trade that you got into. It felt more like a trade. It's like if you were a carpenter or a plumber or you were a commercial artist. That was a trade you take up because you have to have this variable set of skills 
a lot doing with hands. Like you'd have to cut up mock-ups and do all these different things. It was a completely different business, but I loved it. And I fell in love with graphic design and uh, I got a degree and, um, in uh, uh, 1981 and I set off on my career. And uh, I had a couple stops along the way. I worked for a paint and a home care center. So I got a lot of retail background and I learned how to do layouts really fast, which was really good for me uh, to just be able to think on your feet and sketch something out and let it rip and then put it into production. And, uh, and then I also had some time doing packaging for Sears, which was kind of an interesting business because it was like for their lawn and care stuff. So we'd have to do extensions of a look and then put it through all these different sizes. So those are things that you do in your past that you don't think will ever fit into your future, but they really made a big difference to talk about systems and branding and cohesion and point of sale. And uh, those are learning lessons that uh, I would never give up now. And then in uh, 1984, I got a break to go work for a company here in Chicago called Franklin Company. And they are kind of the kind of the people that set sales promotion and in, uh, into into vo- into the Vogue world that we're in today. I mean, they were, they were like the Groupon of of, of, <laughs> of sales promotion, and they their largest largest account was McDonald's. Uh, and so, as a 25 year old kid working on the McDonald's national account, uh, it was a pretty cool deal back then. And uh, and I worked on the first Monopoly promotion. So if you oh. go to McDonald's. <laughs> Yeah. You know, play the Monopoly game. I was uh, the art director in the first Monopoly promotion, one of a bunch of awards for that. And uh, I worked on the McDLT. I don't think you'll remember the McDLT, but that was a sandwich no. that was a hot side, <laughs> full side inside of this thing. And it was like they're trying to compete with the Whopper. But those are really great opportunities for me. And they were really big budgets. And so I was able to really do some pretty cool work. And then in 1987, they started dipping their toe into sports marketing. And uh, they were looking for an art director at the agency to work on the sports business. And no one wanted to touch that with a 10-foot pole. That was kind of like taboo back then. Like sports was like kind of the, the tail on the dog. You know, the big, the big accounts were the big, you know, new product launches. And when the U.S. wins, you win. And all these really big, big monster projects. And sports was kind of like this afterthought that McDonald's had. But I loved sports. And I had done all the sketching as a kid. And, you know, uh, I was actually up for, you know, like I just finished another project. So they pulled, put me on a project and they came, called me into the office and they said, oh, we've got this project for a large fry for small fry promotion. And uh, it's for muscular dystrophy. And you'll be shooting out at the Berto Arena in Deerfield. And Michael Jordan is the spokesperson for uh, the piece, you know. And so you've got to kind of compress this a little bit to think about Michael Jordan in 1987 is not the Michael Jordan he is today. He was nowhere near a global icon. Basketball player. Basketball in Chicago was the fourth sport then, too. I mean, it was like football, baseball, hockey, and then the Bulls, you know. But I I had followed him in North Carolina, so I'm like, well, I'm going to get to work with Michael Jordan, you know. And it was a fabulous experience. And so I still have that in my portfolio, a large fry for small fry thing. And the guy was couldn't be any nicer. And that kind of just kind of created an appetite for me for sports and sports marketing. And that's kind of a – it was a novel term back then. It was just starting to be used. And I worked with a woman at the agency, Frankel, Judy Shoemaker, who was my account executive. So we'd have a, a creative person and an art, you know, and an account person and create an art director together working on the account. She worked on the first Milwaukee McDonald's Open, which was a round robin tournament in Milwaukee, uh, where the Bucks played Trace from Milan and a team from Russia. And Judy was the uh, account executive on that. And there she met David Stern. Uh, and so David Stern really took a liking to her work and her, uh, her talents and her background. She worked for Bill Veck at the White Sox for 10 years in Chicago. 
So she was part of Disco Demolition. And so she had this kind of colorful background. And he hired her in 1988 to be the vice president of marketing for the NBA. So I have this great connection there. And so she's getting things going. You know, the NBA is just slowly growing. It's, it's the volcano that's percolating, but no one knows what's going to happen. You know, <laughs> and yeah. so sure enough, she calls me in late, uh, late 1989. She says, I want you to come and work for the NBA. We need to kind of get control of our brand. Um, and I kind of even, you know, brand at that time was kind of, a, again, like a mystery word. It was not really something that people would focus on. Brands were like IBM or brands were like, you know, Chase Manhattan. Those were like corporate brands. And people didn't talk about brand and sports then. And they, David had a vision to talk about sports as a brand. And so they hired me in June of 1990. I was the first creative person uh, in, in the NBA league office. I was the, I think, I'm the 158th employee uh, in 1990. And by 1996, they had over 1,200 people working in the NBA offices around the world. So uh, right place, right time, very fortunate. You know, the old saying, better be lucky than be good. Living yeah. right here. You can put my face next to that quote. But uh, it was a passion of, 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 of love to be able to work in a sports league. And so I just jumped into it with both feet. Left Chicago, moved to Brooklyn. Used to take the F train up to uh, uh, 53rd and 5th, where the NBA offices were, and worked out there for, for five years. And, uh, and then eight years in Secaucus. And had a fabulous run. And that was kind of just connections making it happen. And there wasn't a long search. I didn't have to have an MBA in brand development or, you know, a doctorate in graphic design. Uh, they just knew I had a passion for sports. And David really was the one that hired me, he called me into his office, and I had to fly up there and show my portfolio. And I remember some of our funny conversations about him, and I'm showing him some of the work. And, you know, he said, well, what, what's your salary requirement going to be? And I, I, I had talked to my cousin here in Chicago who said, you have to, like, go 30, 40, 50% higher than what you'd make in Chicago. So I gave him a number, and he almost hit the floor. And he's like, okay, so that number, so you're going to pay me that much a year because you should be paying me to work here because this is what's going to – we're going to explode as a company. And really, this is like you should be paying me to do this job, you know, like yeah. <laughs> such a salesman, you know, and I'm like – boss." The boss, yeah, the commission. And he, you know, and now we, we just laughed about it. And, you know, in June of 1990, I started the NBA. And there at the NBA, there's no creative services division yet. You know, we just kind of made that up as we went along. The NFL was doing a little bit like that, and they were doing a lot for their licensees. So there was already a division in New York called NFL uh, Creative Services or Design Services. And so there was a there was a model out there that was being built. But for me, you know, it was just like, wow, okay, I got to kind of get my arms around this and figure out how to do this and doing it somewhere else, not doing it in Chicago, but doing it in New York. And this was before the internet. So you had to do a more mm -hmm. conventional way of finding talent. And you, you, you couldn't, of course, you couldn't find sports designers in 1990. There was no such thing. You know? <laughs> yeah. um, so we found, so I was able to build this. So we went from a person of one working on a drafting table, specking type like the old days, because I, we didn't even have a Mac set up yet to building out a Mac studio and having 25 people reporting to me by around 1997. So we built up this huge division based upon a classic agency model, having account executives, uh, graphic designers, production people, uh, uh, and managing the business. And we ran it like uh, an extension of, uh, of, the, of the NBA. And we reported into Stern and Rick Welts, who was the president of properties at the time. And, oh, my God, it was a wonderful time to be there. 
and we were pioneering. And I don't like to use that term too loosely because it makes it sound like we were showing up at horse, <laughs> horse. <and buggy. laughs> but we certainly were. We certainly yeah. were changing the model a little bit. And it was um, we learned a lot and we did a lot of cool things. And there was a lot of freedom to do it back then. Um, there was less restrictions and there was not a lot of layers there. Uh, David was very entrepreneurial. You ever hear him talk or listen to a podcast of his, you know, they asked him about his business plan and he said, I never had a business plan. My business plan was showing up the next day for work. You know, that was basically how they took advantage of opportunities. And so it was a great time. It was a lot of hard work. We worked a lot of hours. I remember the saying, if you don't show up on Saturday, don't bother showing up on Sunday to work. <laughs> so, uh, you know, the, he was a taskmaster, kind of like the Vince Lombardi of commissioners. You know, we could throw around like, some colorful words when he was not happy. And he was a, he was a tyrant, but he made you a better, better uh, designer and better person. And he really, he, you know, his name was on the ball. And so he took everything very personal and uh, it made us all very, very good at our jobs and made us really aim higher than maybe we even knew we could, we could aim. So, that's kind of a, I'm sorry, it went a little long, but that's, no, how I, great. that's how I got in the door. They're basically connections and a passion for the sport. And sometimes looking at something and saying, oh, no one else wants to touch this, but maybe this is a golden opportunity to do something that mm -hmm. I might really love and, and be good at. And, you know, some 35 years later, I guess it worked out, you know. So, yeah, I think I think yeah. so. It seems very serendipitous, right? Um, yes. Like you yeah. said, right place, right time. And for me personally, I my basketball fandom was the same way. The first basketball game I ever watched was the 1993 finals game six, Chicago bulls versus the Phoenix suns. Wow, and yeah. one of the things that drew me to that game, cause I was about to turn seven years old. You know, I, it's yeah. not like I was breaking down X's and O's as a yeah. kid. I was like, yeah. Oh my God, like look at all the bright colors. And, you know, I think you look at two, both of those jerseys, you know, the Chicago bulls, obviously one of the classic, you know, NBA jerseys, very, minimal changes throughout the years and then the bright colors of the phoenix suns and when i think of the 90s this is you know the suns jersey is one of the jerseys i think of that sunburst logo i feel like was way ahead of its time it's something that has lasted i mean they're still using the logo i i do wonder why uh we don't see them going back to the jersey but it could be my bias of being a kid and growing up with it but um one of the things that you did with this jersey is you you sublimation printing correct correct and this was, was right. this was the first sublimation print that the nba had used it was the first um, one it was the first one that i had worked on um yeah. when i joined the league the new jersey nets that just reintroduced that tie-dyed look yeah. that was kind of yeah. like champion kind of dipping their toe into what might be possible with sublimation mm -hmm. and so they used sublimation that was a pattern not as part of the branding so I think that was the big difference. No, but the thing that the sublimation uh, era was happening right uh, right then, you know, and uh, and I think that was driven largely by um, technology, you know, that we were able to design that jersey, not uh, in Photoshop and Illustrator. And to be able to take those Photoshop and Illustrator files and put them on a fabric uh, was the thing that changed uh, the way we did uniform designs in the 90s. Um, if I tried to use all of those colors and just cut and sew those with tackle twill, that thing would weigh like five pounds. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. So, you know, and, and the technology was there a long time ago, that cycling shorts and uh, ski outfits, you know, the full, full, you know, grand slalom 
yep. ski outfits that you see, that's all sublimated graphics. That's all, you know, very lightweight, uh, you know, dry fit kind of stuff. And so for us to bring it into sports was a, it was a good idea. It made the jerseys cooler, I think, visually and lighter than they were before. Um, and the Suns were ripe for a change. That season, Corey, was their 25th anniversary. And they were also going into the new American West Arena. And so they and had signed Charles Barkley. So they had the perfect storm of going through a change. And their owner, Jerry Colangelo, was terrific. A Chicago guy who worked for the Bulls early on uh, in the late 60s. And uh, we hit it off. He was uh, just he kind of like, you know, he just always liked Chicago people because he always thought they kind of worked hard and left the BS behind. And uh, he said, I need to have what I would call a modern classic. I want to be able to look at this jersey in 25 years and say it still looks relatively fresh and contemporary. Um, well, that's a pretty big undertaking. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but what we used was we just used the value of the intensity of what their colors already were. I always thought that, the you know, the purple and uh, orange were great colors. Yeah. Uh, and very unique to Phoenix. And, uh, and then we just added some black and a secondary orange. And, uh, and, you know, we, there's some sketches you could find online of some of the workups that got there. Um, but that one is kind of like, almost like my firstborn, you know, I was very proud of that design because I knew that we'd done something different. Uh, and yet it didn't look too out of place with, you know, what was happening in the nineties, maybe a little bit out of place on NBA courts, <laughs> but there was a lot going on in the nineties, yeah. you know, and fashion and hip hop and MTV and, you know, the, you know, the explosion of, you know, uh, technologies like sublimation. Uh, it was a very colorful era, you know, and, uh, and so we kind of just walked right into that open door. I kind of remind, it kind of reminds me, it's just a good analogy of, when you watch the Wizard of Oz and Dorothy lands after the bad tornado when she lands in Oz and she's in this kind of black and white room and she's got Toto in her arm. And there's that scene where she slowly walks to the door and there's kind of suspense and you have no idea what you're going to see behind the door. And then she opens up the door to reveal this unbelievable explosion of color, you know, <laughs> and yeah. it's, Oz. it's Oz. And I think we're Oz, the NBA in the nineties was kind of like Oz. It was <laughs> This bright, colorful, cheerful, energized, everybody knows the first name of the player's era. And um, and we could do no wrong. I mean, it was a kind of a very golden – it was a golden area too because everything we touched kind of turned to gold. Everything was so great with the dream team and some of the all-star games we did. Um, I think that that was a really big turning point for the league on the court and off the court. And uh, I was proud to be part of it, yeah. Now, well, let's talk about the all-star game. So – you know, if you go through each year traditionally, very red, blue, dominant, um, yep. you know, some slight changes, but for the most part, it it's very consistent. And then in 95 and 96, you get that explosion of color, like you say, that, that Wizard of Oz. And, you know, that was one of the jerseys that I was uh, contemplating wearing the, uh, you know, the oh. teal Jordan uh, All-Star yeah. Game jersey. I think it's yeah. It's probably one of my five favorite basketball jerseys ever. Um, and, you know, I think that what made it special was that it really felt connected to the cities for those years. Yes. Very good. Um, Very good. You know, so yeah. was there was there any pushback from the league having gone from that, you know, basic red, blue, very simple to these bright outlandish designs um, or with the success of some of the other, you know, bright colors, was it, was it a little easier to kind of change things and make it really feel like 
you know, the location that the game was taking place in. You know, it's it's so funny you bring that up because our my, part of my conversation with Stern once I started the NBA was like, okay, I brought you on, you know, Mr. Hotshot. You know, like you need to look at everything we do and challenge it. Like it, we just have been doing this for years because it's like one of those, we did it last year that way. Let's do it that way again this year, you know, and a lot of companies fall into that trap. Yeah. One of the first things, one of the first things I noticed when I went to the, my first Oscar game was in Charlotte uh, at the Charlotte Coliseum and your perfect description of everything was red and blue. You know, and I looked at it and I'm like, this team is known for their teal and purple, you know, the men of teal, like where is all the teal? Where is the color? And why wouldn't the host city want to own, you know, like, okay, let's the red and blue logo man has to be part of this. Right. But on the flip side, we're playing in Charlotte's hometown. Why aren't we using those colors and why aren't we bringing those alive? And that was one of my statements when I, after the post, post all-star that year, I went to Dave and I said, what's the deal with this like red and blue thing only? He goes, what do you mean? He goes, everything we do is red and blue for these special events. And he goes, okay, well, there's another job you got to do. You got to fix that. So let's start looking about how we can fix that. So if you look at the all-star game in Orlando, the Magic Johnson all-star game, when he hit some of those threes at the end, the court, the uniforms are red, I mean, are blue and white. And the court looks like the Orlando Magic court that just happens to have an all-star game logo at center court. And a lot of the graphics around inside the venue are Orlando Magic colors. And so that was the first year and the following year that we brought in the team colors into the palette. We didn't change the uniforms and champion had kind of this, they liked this kind of like design that they had were kind of like this military look for all-star. And so David was like, let's get, you know, let's go through this step by step. We don't have to change everything at once. Let's do this kind of as a rolling change. So for Utah, the court looked like the jazz court, but it still was the NBA, you know, red, red, white, uh, the blue and white uniforms and same thing the following year in Minnesota. But then, you know, Rick Welts, who was the president and the guy who I tremendously respect and learned a ton from, he goes, he goes, Phoenix has to be different because you've done the Phoenix All-Star, you've done the jersey. Yeah. So that's all of ours. That's all of our ownership. That's us, you know. So why don't we amp it up to the next level? And why don't we create an All-Star game uniform that looks like the Suns or something similar? And so, you know, he let the cat out of the bag after that. So it was like, let's do the court. Let's create secondary logos. We have a gecko secondary logo that was really a lot of fun. Uh, the uniforms with the cactus, um, everything that went into that particular uh, all-star event was really formed off of the Suns identity that we'd done back in 1992. And I, it's one of my favorite projects of all time because when you see it today, it still looks pretty fresh. It looks kind of fun. And it seems like a lot of people over the years have copied that formula. You know, it's almost like the template for how to like amp up your game presentation, you know, on broadcast and at the venue. Uh, so, yeah, so that was a, uh, that was a lot of fun. And I, I'm, I, I'm really happy with a lot of, it seems like, <laughs> it seems like Mitchell and Ness have built like a side business just then the Yelp. Yeah. <laughs> I go to their, I go to their site sometimes and I'm just like, Oh, look at those like swimming trunks that have like, you know, like MTV raps meet all-star 1995. And I love that. I got a really big kick out of that. That really is like something for me is just like, wow, you know, it, it has this staying power that I don't even know why. Maybe because people like different and maybe like colorful, but that's thrilling to see that. Uh, I wish I still had, I wish I had royalties on some of those. So, <laughs> you know, better, better, better at design than a business, maybe. I don't know. But, uh, yeah. what's, strange, what's strange is it feels like 
you know, you talk about how you go on Mitchell and Ness and like they're marketing and branding it on so many different pieces of apparel now, but it feels like they've gone backwards. And now everything has that very bland corporate feel again. They've gone away from city specific designs. I think they tried to do it this year. Um, I guess the game was supposed to be in Indiana originally. And then right. when it changed to Atlanta, they still stuck with the, you know, the, right. the themed right. jerseys, but for the most part, it's, you know, back to red, blue. Um, and then eventually it was like just black and white and black and silver. Um, yeah. Are, are, are there focus groups that say they prefer that simple stuff? Cause it feels like if you're actually talking to the members of like the basketball community, they cherish all the, you know, the memorable jerseys, you know, you can't really discern the NBA all-star game from 2009 versus 2011, but you definitely can look at 95 and 96 and remember specifically, you know, that game in particular, I feel almost because of the jerseys and the branding. Right. You know, event branding is really a cur- uh, curious business and a curious study in, in design and in, in, in just in general, because when you think about event branding, it's a one-off. You're going to play an all-star game and you're never probably going to wear those uniforms again. So I think that sometimes you can overthink something like that, or maybe fashion drives it too much and not enough about it's a moment you're going to play an all-star game for two and a half hours and then it's done. So uh, my philosophy over time has been make it as trendy and as, you know, 1995 looking as possible because you're never going to do 1995 again, you know? And so like in 2021, what would be that look? And so maybe somebody said everything has gone to this conservative kind of like, less is more style, then I would definitely understand that, you know, yeah. but there is a side to enter, uh, event branding that's entertainment too. And so you're bringing, you're, you're bringing something extra. You're, you're going to the circus. It's not an official game. And so largely it should, it, it should just drip of entertainment value and, and brightness and boldness. And, you know, this kind of like, welcome to the show kind of feeling. And, you know, I agree with you. I think that that's been lost over the last 10 or 15 years. I don't, I don't have any reason. I don't have any knowledge of focus groups. I really don't have communication with the NBA much anymore. So I don't know what drives that. And I don't know if that's something that's coming out of Nike mm-hmm. and because they have the license. And so they're yeah. the ones that are maybe like trying to be the next provocative thing. I think, you know, you see the NHL does a better job with their all-star uniforms. And I think with theirs, those are hit, hit or misses. I think some years they have a pretty nice all-star game uniforms and other years, you know, it's pretty bad. And so, yeah. And when I say bad, I just don't think it, it's not something uh, – I have a very funny gauge for, for good and bad. And, you know, good is if I had $200 in my pocket, I wouldn't miss what I buy that versus something else. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a retail junkie, you know. So, I'm, you know, I've got all the hats and all the jerseys. And so does it would, – would, would the impulse – would it be good enough that just as an impulse purchase, I would just do it. I have to have that jersey. And it doesn't happen much anymore. And it, it doesn't happen much for me in a lot of different sports, you know. Um, and maybe that's just kind of a jaded look at it. Um, when I do some, something nice, like, uh, and I know we'll get on this topic for a second, so I can jump back into event branding really quickly. But like when I saw the Memphis Grizzly City Edition this year, you know, I said that's something that I would be proud to say I did, you know. And that's one out of maybe 50 that I'd say that about, you know, like okay. where I just jump in and say that's really well done. And I love the integrity of what they did. I love the story behind it. And I love the colors. And I love the fact that it still looks like the Grizzlies, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, we'll get there uh, for a second. 
event branding is kind of like blow it up and have a one day or three day party, you know, and let's just let it rip. You know, you don't get married. You don't get married every day. Right. So when you no. do get married, that day's a special day. Yeah. And all star and should feel like that. But to a lesser degree, it's tougher for the uh, for the NBA finals because you don't know what cities you're going to. Right. So you really, you know, you can't really have a Bulls finals and a Suns finals in 1993. You have to have a, a, a logo that kind of sits there and kind of feels like an like the premium brand. Like when you do a finals event, it should be premium or the Super Bowl should look premium. Like mm-hmm. yes. your good, better, best, you know, kind of paint for Sears. That should be above the best. That should be the premium paint that you're willing to pay extra for. And I think those are pretty simple lessons, but they're very effective lessons. And I don't know why. Uh, it's so hard to follow that. I, I, I'm, I'm completely lost in the whole NBA, like, you know, generic templates that they're doing yeah. for all-star games and for the finals. And I, I have, a, I have a big issue with the finals logo yeah. situation. I mean, I, you know, yeah, let it rip. I feel like the finals logo. Should not look, yeah, the finals rip. logo shouldn't look like a kid in his second year of graphic design school could just take a generic font and NBA logo, whatever year, and then just slap it on the court. I mean, those nineties and there were a few of them and each one, I mean, yeah. Yeah. it just, it, you know, it made you feel something. Yeah. And yeah. I think, you know, with art, you're supposed to feel something. Basketball is supposed to be like jazz. It's supposed to be, you know, the sport that makes you feel something and, and the generic, which, you know, the finals logo is a good way to, you know, kind of transition from the generic kind of jerseys that the all-star game is, is doing because it fits into the same pattern when you have, and I'm not even saying to just use the things from the nineties, but at least use the idea that it was special. The, the, the finals logo now does not feel special to me. It feels just like something that anybody could do, not somebody, it doesn't feel like there was time put in. And I'm sure that whoever's doing it is putting their time in and have to go through revisions and, and whatnot, but it just feels like something like, here you go, slap it on the court, easy, done, easy on the eyes. But you know, it's not anything that evokes any kind of emotion for me personally. Corey, you're right on. Now, there's one thing I've got like a like a qualifier here. A lot of times on Twitter, I, I'm known to be a pretty bombastic raider, you know. But I, I want designers to understand that I get it. It's not usually probably 95% management or league office that are making yeah. those decisions, and the designers mm-hmm. are facilitating those requests. Believe me, absolutely. And I've had I've hit home runs, and I've I've struck out and th- sometimes I've struck out because they don't even allow me to go to, at, to, to bat with the bat, you know, to the plate with the bat, you know, like yeah. there's nothing I can do. And I think that's part of maybe what's happening too, is that maybe upper, you know, upper influences are causing a kind of a shift or somebody walked into a commissioner's office and sold them on a bill of goods about, Oh, you're doing all these different designs and it's costing you a fortune. But if you just come up with really nice compressed font and then be able to manage it and put it left of logo man. And if you do that for the draft and if you do that for this and if you do that for that, imagine all the money you're going to save and all the, you know, you'll have consistent look to everything you do. Well, not every event's the same event, not the draft is different than the finals. And, you know, it's like, I just think that uh, some of that gets lost in, in, in like overthinking what's not that hard and what's been successful, you know, when it, it's a classic, if it ain't broke, don't fix it to me. Like, sure. You have to evolve it. And what are, what's the next thing for the NBA finals? And boy, when we had an NBA finals, we'd have a big sticker, you know, on the two like transition zones and we'd have them on the pole pads and we'd have them on the seat backs. 
And some of the shots, maybe in the mid to late 90s, you see these beautiful graphics we have of a guy like doing a layup or a jump shot. And they all look like the finals logo, like stylized, you know. Yeah. And to me, it's like that's the only way you can make it look like a big event when you don't know where you're going until, you know, a couple of days before the event's going to happen. So you have to have that kind of backloaded, ready to go and say, hey, we're heading out to Chicago and, and we're going to Utah. And so we've got to bring two, you know. Let's create banners for the Delta Center and for the United Center and let's, you know, get ready to go. Um, and that's what, you know, uh, baseball does for the World Series. And, I, you know, I think baseball is far ahead of everybody else right now as far as graphics go. And I feel that because I think they're always challenging themselves. Every World Series logo is different. Every, you know, everything they do, I think. And I, I know baseball has to be more conservative. But I give them credit for continuing to, like, let's roll out something new and different. And, mm -hmm. you know. The all-star game in Atlanta should look like you're in Atlanta, you know, and the world series should be a different look every year because it's a special event every year. So I think that the NFL and to a lesser degree, the national hockey league, because they do a nice job with their winter classic work for sure. And uh, some of their all-star games, but not as much. And then, and I think, you know, you know, the NBA, you know, we've talked about that. So I, you know, I, I think there's a lead dog in this process. Now it's major league baseball. I think they do the nicest job of pulling together their look uh, at every touch point, uh, both in their all-star cities and in, in the world series. So, Interesting. Yeah. Um, all right. So you, you did, you touched on the Grizzlies for a little bit before let's talk about the Grizzlies and the Raptors inaugural branding. And, you know, it, we talked about like the nineties, you know, for nineties kids. And I feel like those two jerseys in particular with the Raptors and yep. the Grizzlies, which both have been brought back in recent years, not it, you know, that kind of feels like the nineties almost more than anything. And obviously still has a modern enough feel that, you know, they're probably two of the most popular jerseys the league has today being brought back for their classic jerseys. Um, and, it's both processes probably have a lot of similarities because they were done at the same time. But then also you look at the Grizzlies and, you know, Vancouver at the time, uh, it really feels like Vancouver. Whereas right. the Raptors, you know, it's not like Toronto is known as the dinosaur capital of the world. Um, I feel yeah. like, you know, right. It was piggybacking yeah. off the success of Jurassic park. Right. Yes. Um, so tell me kind of compare and contrast, you know, the process to, come up with two pieces that feel similar, but really have a lot of differences when you really get into the nitty gritty of it. What's, what's really interesting and people who have never worked for a league will never really fully comprehend it. But when you, when you're working for a sports league, you really have 30 different bosses, right? So yeah. each team owner is one of the league's bosses. Uh, you know, owners are the ones that decide that David Stern is commissioner. And so they're the bosses of David Stern in the league. So when you go into different markets, these most of these men and women have made their money in very different ways. Like one could be an internet shark, like, you know, like broadcast.com, like Mark Cuban. Another can be old school money for a guy like Bill Davidson from the Pistons. And so you, you really are working in almost a pool of 30 different businesses and how they've made their money and how they do their business outside of basketball. So for the Raptors as an inaugural team, you know, we worked with a younger owner named John Bitov Jr., and he he was like so against anything that just said Toronto only. Like he's like, 
I want to be an international brand. I have no interest in just throwing big Canadian flags on everything and let's red, white, and blue. And I don't want to be called the Mounties or any of that stuff. I mean, I want none of those. I want none of those kind of like defaults when we start yeah. designing this. I want something new and fresh and different. And if and I want something that people really haven't done before. Like it's not out there. You know, I'm like, wow, you're just not asking for too much, are you? <laughs> so, <laughs> So I'm like, okay, well, let's let's think about this for a second. And of course, you know, at the same time, Jurassic Park is like exploding and becoming something really, you know, like pop culture phenomenon and people going to that, see that and grow in droves. But there are some things within that that are really interesting. The fact that it's dinosaurs and, you know, and so John's point was like, when we start talking about names, he's like, I said, you know, what about like, you know, you know, talking about dinosaurs and he goes, well, dinosaurs are extinct. Right. And I go, yeah, dinosaurs are extinct, but they are, they, kids love them. You know, the first thing a kid loves when he's really like three, four five years old is like seeing these big oversized things in the past and you know how they don't relate to anything today. And what are those dad and mom? And, you know, it's like, well, dinosaurs are actually kind of a clever thing. And, but he liked T-Rex. And I said, John, that's a big lumbering slow, you know, thing. But if you watch the Jurassic Park movie, the Raptors are the, they travel in packs. They're fast. They're only, I, don't, I think they've said that they're like six, six and a half feet tall and <laughs> when they found fossils. And I'm like, and they're badass, you know, they're, they're tough. Yeah. Kids kind of get intimidated by that a little bit, but that's what attracts them. And so there was the debate about the name. And, you know, once, once John took that, he had three kids that were young at the time, three boys, I think. And they like, yes, Raptors, dad, we love Raptors. Like, and they start drawing stuff and it's like, that was it. He was sold, you know, that that was going to be the name of the team. But it really fit the fact that you're right. There's no there's no connection to Toronto uh, necessarily. And I'm sure there's some fossils found in Canada yeah. somewhere, but sure. that's not the story. You know? <laughs> the story is that it's a fast, quick moving group of, you know, a term and aggressive, you know, creatures. And that's kind of what he wanted to get off with his his team name. It's also a provocative name. Not unlike what I think the Kraken have done with the Seattle hockey team, mm-hmm. where you know, they could have been the Sea Monsters or whatever, and that would have been fine, or you know. But this, in this case, they're just like pushing the edge, you know. And that's what I think the Raptors named it. And then the color scheme also did that. You know, purple was kind of he wanted purple, so no matter what we do, he wanted purple. And there's quite a few purple teams in the NBA, but the purple and the red, I thought that just we we originally had a green Raptor, you know, and. He says, I'm getting pushed back by some of my fellow investors. They're like, there's nothing in here that says Canada at all. You know, like nothing. You know? <laughs> and so we're going and we're kind of like sneaking our little comments to our little like home focus groups and whatnot. People are like, where's the Canadian anything? You know, and it's like, okay. So then I said, I'm, let me just flip the color of, of Raptor from, you know, green to red, you know. And we sent it. And I'm like, whoa, these colors, you know, <laughs> purple and black and red. Those, that's not a normal yeah. color palette, you know. But I said, but that's the key. You can own that. That could be a color that no one else has in sports. And so that works for you, too. Just like Teal worked for the Charlotte Hornets back in 1988. Nobody was into Teal back then until Alexander Julian designed the Hornets uniforms. So that was like that's that got the ball rolling. And then we had it was a playful look. And John, you know, we've always talked about it. And John said, you know, my uniform, I want something that's really over the top. And so we originally just had Raptors on the front and, and pinstripes. And he's like, no, I want more. Like, push it. I'm like, okay, so what else? And so then I came back and we put, like, the jagged edge pinstripes on. And he goes, oh, that's really beautiful, but it needs something else. 
And so almost like a joke, I put the Barney, you know, the little Raptor guy in front of it. And I said, well, you know, like I sent it to him and he goes, maybe your kids are like this. And he goes, forget about my kids. I love that. You know, like that is like so different. That's really what got the uniform to be where it went. You know, there's a little, you know, like you're from, you're a a Ranger guy. So even like the back plate, we took some clues from different sports. Like the Flyers hockey team has their plate in black on the white uniform. So we kind of stole that for the Raptors curve which is part of the logo and there was a lot of things that was just that's my days of noodling in in, in high school you know on a mm-hmm. notepad making yeah. team logos and uniforms that's my visual background and inventory in my head just saying boy i'd always wanted to do something like that for a team like wouldn't it be cool and i'm like hey maybe i can do it for the for the raptors and they love that too and they you know that's another thing they use so i had a lot i had a pretty deep cory bag of tricks and i kind of used it all in toronto <laughs> <laughs> Everything in the kitchen sink. We even had this thing called Raptor Wear, which is basically a print of these like youthful graphics of just a pattern of a Raptor and a basketball and a this and a that and a claw. And we just, they actually had compression shorts that the players are going to wear. And then I think <laughs> Damon Stottlemyre saw it and said, there's no way I'm going onto the court with that because I'm going to get laughed <laughs> off the court by my contemporary. So Stottlemyre killed the, uh, he killed the Raptor Wear. <laughs> so you're so that was kind of the Toronto story. What we call yep. the the Happy Meal box of 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 uniforms. That's kind of the thing that we always refer to it as today. The Grizzlies were not, oh, 180. They they really felt like their owner was more conservative. Uh, they felt like they have such a beautiful city to to portray in all their graphics and uh, the native culture in that region is very powerful and very important to them. And so they brought in a Haida chief. That's the name of the, the, the tribe that is very popular in the Pacific Northwest region. And he's the one that I worked with to come up with the pattern for the uniforms. And so that was all part and parcel of a much deeper dive into the culture, the history, the background, and the sensitivity to, to Vancouver. So the color palette, you know, I just didn't choose turquoise and red and brown um, because I thought those are cool colors. The, the turquoise represents the sky. The red represents blood. The brown represents the grizzly bear. So those colors all had meaning, deep meaning, before I ever got involved. It was on, it's on totem poles everywhere there. When you get to the Vancouver airport, you see these massive totem poles that they've cut the floor out of, and they can run up into the ceiling. It's just it's a magnificent airport and a magnificent city. So we really leveraged all of the um, uh, indigenous assets of Vancouver and kind of combine them all together. But still, we were still in the mid nineties on this kind of like more youthful path. So we wanted the Grizzly to not be too mean or too aggressive or too scary, you know? Yeah. So that's why he's a little bit more like fluffy and cartoony. You know, if you look at him <laughs> kind of carefully, you know, you can see the, you know, he's there, like his head by himself is a little bit like the Chicago bears. And then of course yeah. use the, uh, you know, the, the, the ball and the claw, which is a secondary logo. And, that was something that was really clever that we did back in the mid-90s, what we called peelable logos. And so your primary logo had a, a series of assets. And if you did it well enough, you could peel off the, the bear claw and you can peel off the head. And then you can use the logo by itself as a partial logo. And then the big Vancouver script behind him on the front of the uniform. So those are really like brand, you know, like punches to the gut. Just keep slamming home the new brand. It's an expansion team. Sell, sell, sell the name, sell the items, you know, sell the whole kind of experience. 
And so, yes, so that was a fun project to work on. I love the uniforms today. The colors just kind of just never gone away. It's never really, people see the color and love that turquoise. And I, I do too. When I saw Memphis played uh, with the, you know, uh, uh, I forget his name, number 12. Uh, John Morant, yeah. Phenomenal player. And just to yeah. see him on Slam Magazine with the with the throwback uniform in a modern interpretation, just beautiful, you know. And so, yeah, I those are just, again, I you know, those weren't, again, meant to be kind of like these modern classics. We just did a really nice job at the time. And that's there was no reason, there was no idea of any Mitchell and Ness or throwback vintage generation or, you know, good looking young guys like you wearing this stuff, you know, 25 <laughs> years later, there was, there was, that was not the plan. It was just give the owner a really good look, make it fit within the NBA quilt. I called it the NBA quilt. So you have 30 teams and each part of that quilt should have a little bit of its own specialness. You know, that's why I get so mad. Like when I see teams and this is not to knock them because again, I don't know the thinking, but a team like Philadelphia to just go back and lean on the patriotic Liberty bell and the red and blue and, you know, and not, you know, when we had the Iverson look, we had this owner named Pat Croce, who uh, was a big Harley guy. And the first <laughs> yeah. thing he told me was, I want to be the Harley Davidson of the NBA, you know, and I got a badass player in Allen Iverson. So give me something with these colors. And, uh, and again, that's another one where I think, I don't know why they didn't go back to use that uniform. Because every time you see like a Twitter poll, it's like fans are like, bring this damn thing back. What are you yeah. doing? You know? Yeah. <laughs> so there, there's a few of those. There's a few of those in the NBA that fans are just like, why, like the Suns, why aren't we wearing this uniform? So yeah. I don't know. I don't know how to, again, I'm not working for those teams. And maybe that's part of the license where they make more money selling the replicas. And, uh, and the throwback jerseys than they would if they just reintroduced the uniform like you're wearing now. Maybe yeah. that maybe there's a business model there that I'm not privy to, but maybe they're making so much darn money on the vintage side. Why cannibalize our sales in vintage by bringing back the same thing, you know, yeah. which is very possible, you know. So I know I, I go into these deep, 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 deep corners sometimes, but uh, my mind is always like kind of wondering because when you've been there and lived it for 13 years and then, you you know, you're not in there anymore and you had you know, you had these like, you know, these little light bulbs go off. We did it this way. It worked. We did it that way. It worked, you know, and why alter that too much or just build upon that success. So anyway, that's my little. No, I'm, I'm, I'm with you. I mean, for every year that I don't see Orlando magic pinstripe from the yeah. 90s, you know, yeah. <laughs> and I think I read that they were supposed to, you know, the, the owner had wanted it to kind of be like the Yankees, um, something very classic and, if you accomplish, sometimes I wonder if you accomplish the goal you set out to, why run to change it? But you know that that maybe it's as I get older, I'm an old man. Yell at clouds, guy. Um, yeah, no, you know? I mean, no, I know. I think that your thinking is right. I mean, they didn't reintroduce it; they just made it orange and white. And so it's like, yeah. what, what in the what in the world is that? <laughs> I, I mean, like it. This is the stuff that just staggers me when I see it. I'm just like. Am I, is, is my eyesight shot as I'm I starting to see blue as orange? Like what in the world motivated that? Oh, I get it. The sunshine, sunshine state. Well, it's, we can do a whole show. I'd love to come back and talk to you about individual team identities down the road. And yeah, absolutely. Drill down until why this worked or why this didn't work like a Memphis. And why did this work? And Orlando, why didn't this work? Or, you know, like just to see these things and just say, what is going on? 
you know? So that's why even like when I say like baseball, I, I kind of like what they do because they stay more religious to their brands. They're not maybe as exciting or as colorful as the 90s in the NBA, but they seem to at least have some integrity in, in what they're doing and, and some reason. Right. And they stay in their brand path. You know, they, they you know, even when the, like the Padres updated, it looks like the Padres, you know, like should. And so I don't know. I don't know, you know, what to say about that other than uh, I love the league. I love the NBA. I love the WNBA. I have a lot of success there too. And I, I, you know, I think that they, they maybe should reflect back on some of the things that were successful in previous years and maybe use that as the platform, the foundation of rebuilding the brand in a much more organized and stru- uh, structured fashion. Cause right now with all these additions and all that, you know, you turn on the TV and I'm sure you're like, wait a minute, that's the Hickory. Who's Hickory again? Hickory <laughs> and you're playing the black Laker uniform. Oh, that Lake, you know, it's, yeah. I get it. And I get, I understand it. It's a retail play and money drives the show, but, do they do brand damage there? I don't know. Fans that are really into it probably can tell me. You know, it seems like people have strong opinions on it. So when you're top of mind, you know that's a good thing, and people are talking yep. about it. But yeah, I guess either way, right? If you're if you're trending on Twitter for good or bad, you're still trending, and you know, possibly. Right? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if you do long term damage to the brand. You know, I don't yeah. know if you're seeing LeBron and you well. You're going to see LeBron in 18 uniforms before he retires because he's been all over the place anyway. So, <laughs> but at the end of the day, you, I think you get my point. You know, I Michael, do. And Michael Jordan in the Bulls uniform and Michael Jordan in the Wizards uniform is like Superman and Clark Kent, right? Like, yeah. Right? Like, no matter yeah. how you look at it. And, and I designed the Wizards uniform, so I do like the uniform, but it's like even Michael it's- Arnett couldn't save it, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's, you know, there are a few, and, you know, you mentioned the Lakers, they, they bring the, the black jersey and the league has like 17 different jerseys for the teams now, but the Lakers, the Celtics, the Bulls, you know, all fairly consistent branding over the years. And, and I would even put the Knicks into that. Yes. But I think that the Knicks and, and all classic kind of, you know, like OG teams that have storied histories. So, um, you know, I think, it, maybe it's a little harder to push away um, from those histories. But in the 90s, uh, you and I'm a New York guy. So, you know, they're they're near and dear to my heart. Um, you got a chance to not redesign Knicks jerseys, but refresh them. So how did the refresh come about for the for a team like the Knicks? So a refresh happens typically when you have a new ownership group come in. Or you have a new CEO come in, and they want to, you know, they want to change the color of the paint and wallpapers in the offices, you know, yeah. and uh, and they just felt it was time for a refresh. They've used that Nick's font with the circle be underneath it and Father Knickerbocker for a long time, uh, and they, there was a lot of equity in it, you know. And so when we got the project, it was one of those assignments where it's like you gotta you gotta stay in the zip code. You know, you can't start, you know, traveling somewhere else or have a, a different place that you're moving to. You need to still make sure it feels like the Knicks. But this is like early 90s and black and silver are just like killing it. You know, and everybody's into the Raiders, you know, yep. look and the L.A. Kings Chevy look, you know, with the Gretzky era and those things and the White Sox, you know, silver and black. And so they really came to us and said, can we add silver and black into our identity without making it a silver and black team? You know, and so that was a that was a tightrope. 
you know, that we had a walk. And so we, we kind of made that more superhero type development look with the New York on top and the Knicks font that was just modernized. If you really look at it, it's not that dissimilar to the mm-hmm. previous logo, but it's much newer and much more modern. And it, the, all, the whole idea was kind of have this looking up perspective on the font because that's what you do when you're in the middle of downtown Manhattan. Yeah, sure. looking up at all the buildings. The one piece that got pulled out at the last minute that still breaks my heart today was the Empire State Building was right in the center on top of it. So for all your listeners, if you ever want to just go to Google Michael Durrett Nick's uniform exploration, he was the designer that worked on that with me, Michael Durrett, D-O-R-E-T, and just look at some of his outtakes. Uh, we worked together really closely on that, and we were so close to having the Empire State Building peaking with the NY next to it. And then I think, I don't know if it's just like, Paramount or somebody owned the building and are like, oh, we need a lot of money to keep it on there, you know, because we own the rights to the, and so then lawyers got involved. The, uh, what I call the NBA plague, which is the nothing but attorneys plague, you know, <laughs> kind of killed that. But we, we kept the New York font. We kept the same, you know, the type font from the current New York, the, you know, the eighties uh, New York font and the same numbers. And then we just added some side panels, black side panels, and we trimmed it with orange, I don't think, I mean, I don't think we had any silver at all on the uniform itself. It was just in the logo underneath some of the lettering and stuff. And then the silver and black were used on a lot of merchandise. So the Knicks started rolling out a lot of merchandise with black and silver with the Knicks orange and blue logo on top of it, you know. But they never they never went to a black uniform when I was there. They never went to a black alt. And we talked about it a lot. Like, I'm like, you know, like, when are we going to do the, you know, the black alternate uniform? Yep. And Dave Checkets and Pat Riley then left and they had some changes there. And so then they just stayed the course. They cleaned up the uniform. We did it a couple of times where we narrowed the panels and we kind of fixed the pants. And we did something a little bit nicer with the neck and we just kind of tuck, you know, nipped and tucked it a little bit. And that was, I think, during the Alan Houston and uh, Charlie Ward years. That's a beautiful uniform. I, that's one of my favorite uniforms because it just brought everything together. We had a little NY subway token on the pants, waistband and, the nice, like, multicolored striping trim, and that was a really handsome uniform. That fit New York to me, to a T. Yeah. Uh, and it still felt like the Knicks, you know. Um, that secondary logo I love to this day, the little NYK subway token. So, guys your age don't take, a, don't use subway tokens anymore. But back, <laughs> I guess, in the glory days of New York, back when the subway was really more popular than ever, everybody would you know, just pop in a subway token, and that's how they'd get around. So, that's that was brought to me. I'm like, you know, like somebody says, oh, we'd like to maybe consider the subway token. You know, I'm like, okay, is that people like riding a subway? Oh, yeah, it's okay. So then <laughs> Michael Durrett did that little subway token design for us. And I love that. That, that to me, they could have punched out a bunch of different ways. And I still see that hat sell a lot on, uh, yeah, on sure. Hat Club and some of those other, other sites. So, uh, yeah. So what did you like it as a Knicks fan? Did you like the update or did you think it was? Well, I, I, I loved the the uniform um it felt like it like it stayed true to the aesthetic of the of the team but it was something new uh, and it was able to mesh the the worlds together um and growing up in that era uh, especially because the team had success at that time um, yeah. which you know looking back now you know it's it's really been a while you know but the colors like the orange felt brighter uh, a bit like, you know, I don't, it felt dark and gritty, but bright and colorful at the same time, which yeah. I think is, you know, kind of how the city is in, in yeah. itself. So it felt very true to that. Um, 
And I think, like I said, you know, you talk about the Bulls and the, the Celtics and the Lakers, it's hard to play with those jerseys because there is so much history attached. And, you know, like obviously the that Knicks logo is that's the logo that people associate with the Knicks now. You know, nobody without the the triangle behind it, you know, nobody really goes back to the, you know, before that. So to me, it was it was, it definitely worked. Uh, I feel like it worked for all my friends. I mean, I, I think having a guy like, you know, Latrell Sprewell, who was like very cool in my age group. Um, right. Right. I think like everybody at my school really wanted the, the Sprewell uh, Jersey. And like you said, you mentioned Alan Houston and then you had obviously Patrick Ewing and it was just the right group of guys. Yeah. You know, well, yeah. I, I, I think that maybe, and I think this is true to a lot of uniforms potentially that, you know, if you don't necessarily have the team or the one person to associate it with, maybe it doesn't hit at like it should. Um, yeah. But I think, I think for the Knicks and, and the timing of it, I, I think that it really worked. And, you know, we're going on close to 10 years, I think, since the black has been taken out. Um, not a lot of great years in those years in particular, but, uh, I don't know. I think that maybe, uh, maybe the timing's right for one of these thousand of alternate jerseys that, you know, we come out with all, to, to kind of go back, especially because, you know, this is the year that the Knicks have finally had a little bit of success. I, I, I agree with you. I, their colors, they lost some saturation The both the blue and the, and the orange just are, are they're, they're softer. And the last thing you'd ever want to call a New Yorker is soft. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and uh, I mean, you're right. That team Oakley and Mace and all those guys, those guys are badass, you know, and they, they, they'd go to town for their, for their teammates. And um, I, I agree with you. I mean, I, I, you know, I think that that uniform, even from that mid nineties to late nineties window, if somebody said, what would you do, Tom? You know, like, how would you redesign the next uniform? I'd be like, boy, this is my landing strip right here. I'm not going to like go into any other runway. I'll take this and maybe nip talk here and move this there. And I wouldn't do a lot, you know, I mean, it's, it's a beautiful uniform. And when, it, when, when you see the guys in it and I love, you know, one of the tricks is always for us when you think about a uniform designer back in the nineties is you wanted to make the white uniform as appealing as the dark uniforms. Mm. Right. And it's really hard to make a white uniform look real sexy. You know? Yeah. <laughs> so much of it is white, you know, so much yeah. of that gets used and you don't have the chance to use the purple for the suns. And so that's why I kind of love the sun's uniform because the white uniform is pretty cool too. Cause you get the sunburst, you get the purple lettering. And so yeah. you're able to build a lot of value. Being from Chicago, you know, I'm, this is going to be a, you know, I don't, going to throw one of my opinions out there but i think the best uniform in sports is the blackhawks uniforms both the home and the road and i always call the blackhawks red uniform the ferrari of sports uniforms because the black it just reminds me of like instead of the indian head they should just have the ferrari logo on there and they'd be all done you know? <laughs> there'd be no controversy just call them the chicago ferraris and become <laughs> because i think that one is a beautiful uniform but i think what i love about it is the white uniform is almost as nice as the red uniform mm -hmm. you know like the way yeah. it's striped and everything it's so classic in the tomahawks and the whole nine yards. It's just, it just looks like, you know, something that's been there forever. And I think the Knicks can get there real fast. I, you know, I don't think it would take, it would, it wouldn't be hard to get like, let's get right back to like, what did the, you know, what did the, you know, the Willis Reed, Clyde Frazier, you know, Bill Bradley look, and then bring in the Patrick Ewing kind of look and kind of slide them together and then pull them, you know, like, yeah, and just bring them together and just say, you know, here's your modern classic. Yep. You won't need to change this for another 15 years, you know, so. 
Yeah, that would be a fun project to work on. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, uh, like you said, I think it would. I think they're close. I mean, I like the Knicks jerseys, but like you said, little you know saturations, a little soft, and you know, there's there's just little tweaks. I think that could really really set them off. Um, yeah. The, but, New York, the New York font is the new one is not as good as the old one. It's, it's kind of like no, straighter and it's, it's kind of, like, yeah. it looks like, you know, it's subtle, but it's, it's noticed there's, there's a difference to it. Yeah. What yeah. the front of uniform design and designs, like if there's a craft, like one of the most proud uniform design lettering I've ever done is the Vancouver Grizzlies one with the word Vancouver that goes across there. Yeah. And because that was almost like hand lettered, I had to sit there and I said, I want this. It's going to be hard to fit, but I want some sharp edges to it. I want the V and the kind of art of balance, you know, but I, it can't be like the old, the whacked Grizzlies version, the real scratchy clawed version. So, you know, you only have so much space on a basketball uniform too. hockey gets a big break because they have a lot of real baseball. Yeah. Baseball's got hats and socks and, and football, my goodness, the helmet and the jerseys, you know, so for us as a basketball designer of uniforms, you got a pretty small place to you know play. So that's one of the challenges that you run into. It's like, uh, is is that? I, I think one of the other things that drives me nuts in a trend today is just you know, same color numbers on the same color uniforms. You know, um, that to me is like a sacrilege. <laughs> you can't see the player's number on broadcaster from the second balcony. <laughs> you just yeah. take them off and go to the sports or go to Cosby's or whatever, and go get a white uniform and 10 inch numbers and throw them on there. Like Penn state. That's a better. Uniform, right? <laughs> right? Yeah, for sure. You can't see the numbers. You failed. And it happens a lot. Yeah, it it happens a lot. Like, so I don't know. I'm off tangent there, but I had to get that out. Cause it's something that bothers <laughs> me every day when I wake up. It's like, how did they put red numbers on a red uniform? <laughs> the nerve no. of that. The nerve of that. Look, it's, if you can't see it, what's the point, right? If you have to get up close, I mean, it's a broadcast, live, whatever. It's, you know, it, you, you want to be able to, dis, you want to discern who is who. So if, if there are no fans watching, you could do shirt skins for basketball. There's no reason <laughs> yeah. to have a jersey. You really don't need a jersey. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Last, last uh, question. How close were the 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 famed swamp dragons to actually uh, actually happening? Oh, oh, they they were on a they were on the green, and it was almost a gimme tapping. That's how close they were. They were close. They were very very close. In fact, the the it's one of David Stern's one of the things he confided in me later on. He's like, I never thought this would have gotten that far. I thought that somehow, some way, somebody would have stepped in front of this and killed it, you know? And he said, I did not want to do that because it's the team owners. That's their team, you know? And no one gave any, no one cared about the Nets at the time, you know? But he said, I just didn't think it would go this far. And it was, it was put up to a vote of the board of governors. And I thought, and I think he thought that many of the other teams would step in and say, come on, this is not a circus show. But I think so many of the owners realized that the Nets were such a boring name and that they were just off the chart to name them Swamp Dragons certainly would sell a lot of merchandise, which they all share equally. So you sell, you know, $30 million of, you know, you know, Swamp Dragon hats, each one of them gets a million dollars of that 30 million because they share licensing rights. Yep. So they're like, yeah, let it rip. Like we're not going to step in front of something we can make a lot of money on. You know, this is the craziest thing ever, but it's going to be a lot of fun. And then finally one of their owners, they, they call them the Secaucus seven. They had seven owners and they would take turns, you know, ratifying votes. And it finally came to the, this other guy's final turn. 
And I think he chickened out. He was the one that had to place the vote. Yes, because it was the last vote to turn it over. And he said no to it after everybody was like, sure, it was going to get done. And I never I'll never forget the stories about Davis. I guess just going. I wasn't at the meetings, but just going absolutely ballistic in front of all the, you know, the Board of Governors guys and just saying, what in the hell are we doing? Like, you don't you've taken us to this place and now you decided you don't like. (laughs) 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 Only the Nets back then. Only the Nets. And so that killed it. No, it literally was like a gimme. Like we had done prototype testing and we're working on sublimation and we had the stuff was the stuff. I mean, today it would be like, whoa. But back then it was like really badass. It was really looking good. It was really sharp. And uh, I don't know what happened to a lot of those prototypes. I think they were burned in effigy by David. Like they took them <laughs> home and like, you know, Scarsdale back then and just burned them. He was yeah. so mad. <laughs> the swamp dragons are a myth now. <laughs> yeah. They are they're a myth a, now. But they they're a mythical they, creature. They are a mythical creature. I think they're in some video game too, somebody said. like it, Really? Yeah, some video game where the, I don't know, somebody sent this to me. And I was like, wow, the swamp dragon is part of a of an of a NBA-like video game. Okay, cool. Amazing. Um, all right. Hey, Tom, thank, thank you so much yeah. for uh, yeah. sitting down with me and, and doing yeah. this interview. Um, it was a, a pleasure to hear all about the history of, you know, my favorite jerseys uh, from the 90s. Um, so, yeah, just thank you. Do you have uh, anything, you know, you want to plug? Oh, where can people find your, you? Good luck with your Harvard adventure. It sounds really exciting. Yes, and if you, you ever need a, a, a monthly contributor to you want to bring up something about uniforms, you know where to find me. So absolutely. Thank you so much. Okay. Take care. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye.